years ago, a friend of mine, Deb Richardson Moore, left a long and successful journalism career to go to seminary, a decision which forced her family and close friends to suggest on more than one occasion that she had lost her mind. <laughs> Undaunted, she earned her MDiv, and after graduation, she accepted a call to be pastor at Triune Mercy Center a struggling congregation made up of about 40 elderly members and a never-ending stream of homeless people, most of whom were addicts. Let me tell you now that since Deb became its pastor nine years ago, Triune has grown to include a worshiping congregation of over 250 people and a nationally recognized homeless ministry that combines toughness and intentionality with deep respect and compassion. But believe me, in 2005, Deb's decision to pastor this struggling congregation prompted another round of assertions regarding her sanity, or the lack thereof. She sometimes wondered herself if she was crazy. Deb was ordained as she began her ministry at Triune, and she asked me to preach her ordination sermon. She chose the passage we read just now from Philippians as the text on which she wanted me to preach. As I reflected on what to call the sermon, the reactions of her friends and family to her decisions about seminary and trying came to mind. The title I finally decided on was, Are You Out of Your Mind? <laughs> that got a laugh for sure. But if you read the passage carefully... That question cuts right to the heart of what Paul is saying. 
After witnessing Paul's experience on the Damascus Road that results in his complete spiritual about-face and the persecution and difficulty that ensues, it's not far-fetched to imagine someone asking him, Paul, are you out of your mind to leave your prestigious career as Pharisee and persecutor of Christians to become an itinerant, persecuted missionary? Philippians 2 might well have been Paul's response to that question. Regardless of what you think of him, the Apostle Paul is a realist. He sees people and situations with a clear eye, and he tells it like it is. Paul puts his whole being into whatever he is passionate about, and he knows the joys and perils of both life and ministry. He knows that human life is messy. He wrestles with his own internal demons. Whatever his thorn in the flesh is, it torments and distracts him. He struggles against giving up and giving in to the pain. Because of his tenacious, courageous, outspoken way of living his faith, he experiences some of the most severe punishment imaginable. Stonings, ridicule, imprisonment. He's in prison when he writes the letter to the Philippians. Yet the letter is full of joy and thanksgiving, grace and affirmation. What a witness. Paul knows what it's like to live in the real world with real issues, dangers, problems, and difficulties. The amazing thing about Paul is that in the midst of external debasement and internal struggle, he can even say the words contentment, joy, peace, and grace, much less teach and practice them. But say, practice, teach, and live them, he does. He fosters community in his churches. He chides his fledglings when they get out of line and calls them to emulate the attitudes and actions that are essential to being effective witnesses for the gospel in the volatile world in which they live. Walks his talk. He knows firsthand that to be Christ's follower, you do have to be out of your mind. Let's look at what Paul means by the word that is translated mind in Philippians 2. When we think of mind, we think of intellect, brain, gray matter, what's up here. That's not the meaning of the word in this passage. The word translated here as mind is the Greek word phroneo. Phroneo is actually a verb, an action. Minding, if you will. Minding is not intellectualizing, rationalizing, or philosophical uniformity. Minding is living out of one's true human essence, expressing the essentials that make one fully alive including wisdom, love, sound judgment of self and others, the ability to live freely from one's heart and soul, unfettered by self-absorption, competition, comparison. Paul is calling the Philippians to mind the true essentials of living that can only be found by adopting the attitudes and actions, by taking inside the essence 
of Jesus. An overemphasis on Jesus' divinity is one way we Christians let ourselves off the hook. We tell ourselves, Jesus is God. There's no way I can really be like him, so I can let that slide. Cheat here, lie there, fudge a little, waste a little, take that for myself even when it doesn't belong to me, make fun of that person, judge that one, let resentment about that situation fester. After all, I can't be like Jesus. He's God for Pete's sake. Me? I'm only human. While it is true that Jesus is fully God and came to show us who God is, that is not the whole story. Jesus was also fully human. In addition to revealing God's nature to us, he came to show us who we are created by God to be. Folks, we can do little more than gaze at the divinity of Christ. That is mystery in the face of which we must tread lightly and with little real knowledge or certainty. What we can do, and what this passage calls us to do, is to look very carefully at the human Jesus who walked on this earth and said things like, love your enemies. The one without sin can cast the first stone. Feed my sheep. If someone asks you to carry a pack for a mile, carry it too. If someone needs your shirt, give your shoes away too. The essence of Jesus' way of being in the world, Paul says, involves humility, surrender, obedience, and servanthood. Those are big words, lofty words, words that roll off our tongues with ease but are obscure in our practice of them. I'm not sure we really appreciate them in our 21st century world any more than they did in the first century. In the first century, humility was not a virtue, but a sign of weakness. We really tend to think that way too. But to Paul, Jesus' humility exhibited by his choice to become fully human is strength in its highest and purest form. To be humble, obedient, and servant-like is to embrace fully our humanness. We resist this. We tend to forget that we are finite beings bound by limits of physical bodies, time and space, our families of origin, the location of our birth, the culture around us, and the choices we make within those boundaries. We tend to forget that our differences in color, race, sexuality, religion, and wealth do not make anyone less or more valuable than another. Our forgetfulness is pride, pure and simple. We have to give up playing God and let go of the illusion that we control our lives and the lives of others. Like Jesus, we have to bend our wills to a higher will. We have to serve and allow ourselves to be served, which may be hardest of all. We have to come to grips with the fact that we are spiritual beings that hold in our souls the image of God, but that our souls are contained in physical earthen vessels, vessels that are breakable, fallible, complex, vulnerable, and beautiful. We have to understand that exaltation and judgment are God's work. Our human work 
is to kneel before God and each other in humble service. Paul knew firsthand that minding this way of Christ has the potential to turn life as we know it upside down. The pa this power divesting compassionate humility is powerful. It breaks down walls and upends the status quo, turning social convention, gender roles, prevailing wisdom, religious rules, and political and economic systems and structures on their ears. When power systems are challenged, violence of one kind or another often ensues. Jesus' death is exhibit A. Paul is living proof that following the way of Jesus can result in violent reprisals, threats, and persecution. The early church in Jerusalem can attest to this as well. But in Paul's churches, unity, joy, love, faith, humility, selflessness, compassion, and courage prevail in spite of threats, suffering, and persecution. Paul gives testimony to this reality in verses 1 to 4, claiming that unity, oneness of purpose, respect, and joy all come from adopting the attitudes and actions of Jesus. In his book, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision, David Wells says, Humans, humility is that freedom from ourself which enables us to be in positions in which we neither have recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation, and yet have joy and delight. Humility is the freedom of knowing that we are not the center of the universe. If Jesus can humble himself, then so can we. Humility is freedom from our self-made prisons. The ability to offer ourselves to God as the fallible human beings we are. Not to think less of ourselves, C.S. Lewis says, but to think of ourselves less to give ourselves fully to the one who created us and loves us as we are. That we are created and loved by God is infinite mystery. How we choose to live our lives in the face of that love and grace is of primary importance. We're called to bow our heads and bend our knees before it, to surrender to it, to serve others out of it, in recognition of our place in this world, we must learn both to see and love ourselves as God sees and loves us, and to see others through God's eyes, extending to our human brothers and sisters that same selfish, open-handed, generous, forgiving love that we receive. Jesus came to show us how to do that. We see this in the way he lets go, humbles himself, and proceeds to kneel both in prayer and to kneel down and draw in the dust with prostitutes, to sail with lowly fishermen, to be served at table by tax collectors and sinners, to take up towel and basin to wash the dirty feet of disciples, and even to stumble on his way to the cross. Jesus taught us that what it means to be human is a relational reality. To serve and be served. To love and be loved. To carry our own crosses and help others when they falter while carrying their own. 
When we follow the example of Jesus, we choose the relational path of humility, servanthood. We risk looking to the outside world as if we are out of our minds in order to allow the attitudes and behaviors of Jesus to take root in our minds, hearts, souls, and lives. We understand that we are loved not for what we do, but for who we are. And we live that reality out relationally in community. I've often thought that Baptists should institute a third sacrament in addition to baptism and communion. That third sacrament is foot washing. Humility, surrender, obedience, servanthood, the things that display our participation in the mind of Christ are all symbolized in that one act. Foot washing reminds us that the lowest state of servanthood is our highest calling. To face smelly, misshapen, unseemly, dirty feet, both the washer and the washee must humble themselves, letting go of all pretenses and potential embarrassment. This act calls for complete surrender and vulnerability. No prideful attitude or feeling can persist when you are washing or having your feet washed. The playing field is not only leveled, it vanishes completely. Every retreat I ever did as a youth minister included a foot washing. Over my tenure with them, the youth grew to expect it. But it came as a complete surprise to those who went on the first youth retreat I led. None of them had ever heard of an actual foot washing, much less experienced one. Skeptical and nervous to be sure, most went along, but Teddy Chong, a burly sophomore full of macho bravado, flatly refused. I am not doing that. I am not taking off my shoes, he said. I could see he was threatened and way beyond skeptical. So rather than push it, I told him that it was fine if he chose not to participate in the sacrament. But I requested that he sit in the circle and be a part of the community. And he agreed. We began by reading the passage from John about washing, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Then we talked about servanthood, how about humbling ourselves and being willing to forget ourselves for the sake of others shows our faith in ways that the world does not often experience. Then I explained the mechanics of the sacrament and invited each person to remove their shoes. As the others did this, Teddy sat in a circle watching his size shoe, 15 shoes firmly on his feet with laces tied tight. One by one, the basin and towel were passed around the circle as each person had their feet washed and then washed the feet of the person next to them. I forgot about Teddy as I focused on the ritual, on the tears that were being shed, on the courage and vulnerability of the ones involved, on the powerful love being shared, and on the unmistakable sense of spiritual community that was growing among us. As the towel and basin moved around the circle, I noticed a movement to my right. Teddy was hastily removing his shoes, tears streaming down his face. As he allowed his feet to be washed, his tears fell into the basin of water. When he turned to wash my feet, he said, I had no idea. I had no idea how powerful this would be. I was scared to let people see my feet. I was embarrassed. 
I'm not embarrassed or scared anymore. And do you know that Teddy Chong came to me before every youth retreat after that and said, you'll be going to watch me. <laughs> but in that moment, I remember the, the Apostle Peter's reluctance to have Jesus wash his feet. Teddy's response was the equivalent of Peter's response. Not my feet only, Lord, but wash my hands and my head as well. Wash all of me. Nothing less than complete immersion in the servant way will do. Paradoxical, counterintuitive, countercultural, and crazy, though it may seem to others, the act of letting go, of becoming vulnerable, of humbling ourselves, choosing to be a servant, is the way to freedom, abundance, joy, and community. Humility deconstructs our human playing fields and enables us to delight more in what unites us than in what separates us. And ultimately, this humble human path allows us to nurture the divine spark planted deep in our souls. Would that our wor world could hear this call to unity, respect, and mutual submission. How would it make a difference in our choices to bomb each other, fleece each other, lie to, hate, judge, and mistreat each other? This Philippians passage is about how we live in community, how we are one in Christ. Serving ourselves yields loneliness and emptiness. Serving others leads to joy and abundance, freedom and unity. It's not magic. It's hard, humbling work to respect each other when you disagree. To admit you can't do it all. To forgive, to acknowledge that you were wrong, to love those you don't like. Let's face it, we need a really big shirt to put us adults together in the wild. It's hard to power down. Richard Rohr claims that any encounter with God inevitably leads to greater awareness that life is not about you, you are about life. Life is living itself in you. Understanding that your life is not about you is the very connection point with everything else. But you're only a part. You don't have to figure it out, straighten it out, or even do it perfectly by yourself. You do not have to be God. We cannot be God like Jesus is. But we can be the humans we are created to be. As we allow Jesus' essence to come alive in us. The paradox is that as Jesus makes us more fully human, we embody God's image within us more completely. The invitation of the human Jesus that fuels this process of transformation is to become humble servants in Jesus' order of the towel. This is an invitation to which we are called to respond day by day and hour by hour. Have within yourselves the essence of Jesus. Stop comparing yourselves to others. Start comparing yourself to Jesus. Let go of what imprisons you. Quit grasping for the next wrong. Admit that you might be wrong. 
ask forgiveness. Resist judging. Bow your head. Embrace your humanness. Kneel. Pour the water. Take off your shoes. Offer your own dirty feet to be washed clean. And then take your place in the order of the towel. By this, we'll all know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. I want to invite you after the service is over today, if you need to wash your hands, don't wash your feet today. We'll do that later. But if you need to wash your hands as a symbolic act of taking up the order of the towel, I invite you to do that before you leave. like to share that the year before my mother passed away, um, an experience of closeness, when I washed her feet, she was in advanced stages of Alzheimer's, and her feet were gnarled and dirty, but the act of washing my own mother's feet was very moving to me, and I'll never forget.